heart of ours since the day that Jesus took my sins away and to heaven I will go to spend the endly ages while they ever roll praising his name for the glorious day that he saved my soul I remember the day I remember the day when the Lord saved me when the Lord saved me all of heaven came down all of heaven came down I was happy and I was happy and free. Glory filled my soul. Glory filled my soul. For I knew the Lord had made me whole. I shall never forget the day when the Lord saved me. I remember the day. I remember the day when the Lord saved me. When the Lord saved me. All of heaven came down. All of heaven came down. I was happy and free. I was happy and free. Glory filled my soul. Glory filled my soul, for I knew the Lord had made me whole. I shall never forget the day when the Lord saved me. I shall never forget the day when the Lord saved me. Amen. Well, Brother Mark, I'm calling you out, man. You didn't have the guts to do the slide at the end. We worked on it. Me. He was supposed to do that, okay? That's what, we worked on it. You know what I mean? We worked on it. Uh, he'll, he'll get it next time. I wasn't supposed to be in the practice, but I always throw these weird things in. You know, see, they, they're liking when I'm not around. But anyway, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Great song, great message. A great job. Boy, I enjoy that singing. I like that quartet stuff, don't you? It's good stuff. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. We're going to look through verses 8 through 11. Just take a few moments today and consider this. Again, we are kind of at the end of our missions month. We kick things off with missions uh, emphasis the first Sunday, and we've kind of w- gone right on through. We kept on track, and uh, again, uh, everything culminated with our missions conference for the week. Again, two Sundays, basically. We kicked it off on one Sunday, and of course, had Brother Booth even in the evening that Sunday, and then beginning Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we had missions conference with Brother uh, Sp- Smith, and boy, it turned out well, and Brother Spencer Smith did a great job. We were so excited uh, that he was here, and uh, boy, it just exceeded our expectations even. As much as we knew he would do a great job, I thought it turned out so exceptionally well. And uh, we're just uh, looking forward as we close down this month of missions, we're going to kind of just utilize this message just to encourage us as we think about what it is that motivates us, what moves us a little bit. And, and so let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 8. And of course, um, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing to ascend back to heaven. He has been crucified, has risen again, and now he's going to ascend. And we note here in verse 8, it says, but ye shall receive power being instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go unto heaven, into heaven. Wow, I mean to tell you what a passage and what a powerful one it is. As we look at the background of this passage, as we see what leads up to this portion of scripture, I mean, here we have Christ, of course, and we have those disciples and he's instructing them those final instructions before he ascends back to heaven. We note that these particular disciples, to this point in their lives, had witnessed a number of things concerning the Savior. They had witnessed the promised Messiah himself. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, God had promised to send a Messiah whose name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They said his name would be Emmanuel. And when he came in the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the Bible tells us, That Emmanuel did come. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And so they saw the Messiah. They they enjoyed the presence of the Messiah. And so they had witnessed the promised Messiah. They had witnessed the powerful message that he had. I mean, it was a convicting message. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures it says he taught them concerning, speaking of Christ, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I mean, the scribes were a learned group. These scribes and Pharisees, they had gone to school for years. They had learned their trade and they'd learned the word. And yet when Jesus Christ spoke, it wasn't like listening to one of the scribes. It wasn't like listening to one of the Pharisees. No, no, this man spoke with great authority, not as the scribes. They witnessed his powerful message firsthand, these disciples. They witnessed the phenomenal miracles that he performed I mean, amazing miracles. I mean, he healed the halt, the lame, the lame and the blind. He, he cast out demons and he raised the dead. They watched all this. They witnessed all this as they traveled with him and ministered with him side by side. These disciples, they witnessed the perverse men that would follow, those that would lash out at the Savior, those that would scheme and tried to implement sadistic schemes to catch him and to mix him up and mess him up. They heard the slanderous counsel and they had watched as others had tried to thwart his efforts. They had witnessed, however, the perfect master in spite of all of it. The Bible says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. That the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the attacks and in spite of the effort to, to, to thwart his efforts and to keep him from even uh, attaining to the, the goals that he had, they, they did everything in their power to, 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 to mess him up and to harm him. And yet he never once lashed out in the wrong kind of way. Oh, he wasn't always happy about things, but he never sinned. Jesus Christ was sinless. And they witnessed the perfect master They witnessed the prescribed misery. (laughs) I mean, Calvary was not something that just happened on a whim. Calvary was something that was predetermined. In Isaiah 53, 10, the Bible tells us that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ hung on that cross, it pleased God who sent his son. It pleased him that he hung on that cross. And someone says, how could something so heinous and so 
wretched and so horrible please God. Because he understood and knew that the only way to redeem fallen man was through the broken body of his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he could see the end and not just the immediate, he could say, it pleased the Lord to bruise him because he saw the product of that bruising. And finally, they witnessed the proof made. (laughs) He goes to Calvary and there he dies on a cross. Maligned, mistreated, and there they nail his hands and his feet to the cross of, and they raise him into the sky there hanging between heaven and earth. And the devil, I'm sure, thought that the victory had been won. And there with a smile and a sneer on his face, he probably cried out to all of hell and said, We did it! We did it! We did it! <laughs> but three days and three nights later, Christ arose. Up from the grave he arose. Oh my. They witnessed it. They witnessed his resurrection power. And now we have the Lord Jesus instructing them before he now makes his way back to heaven. To take his rightful place. The truth of his return is what he's speaking of now. He's saying, listen, these angels, these men that stood by in white apparel said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back, fellas. That's what he's saying. He's coming back. I mean, and just as he was promised to come, he says, listen, he is also promised to return. He kept his word the first time. He'll keep it again. And we see the truth of his return. And that truth is so important and it is so essential to the success of the Christian life. It's so important that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned in a number of passages in the word of God. It's important also to note that Christ's return is in two stages. The rapture and what is also called then the revelation. We're going to make that distinction in just a moment. But may I say as you read through the scriptures you're going to find that at times it's very difficult to distinguish the one from the other. You can be reading about them and and he mentions them as though they are one the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to see that they are in two stages. However, for the believer, that doesn't present a problem at all for us. First of all, his return is described, and it's described, and we often refer to it as the rapture. Look, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Here in the book of Acts chapter 1, he's talking to them, and he's telling them, I'm coming back. I will return. And he's talking about that second coming. But again, remember, the second coming is in two phases or two stages. And in the New Testament, that return of Christ is defined for us a little bit. It's it's described for us here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And in this particular portion of Scripture, we note it as often referred to as the rapture. For the Lord, verse 16... 
himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's when those that are with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that a new body will come up out of the grave and they will be united with their new bodies. And we will have a new body as we follow them up into the heavens to meet the Lord in the air. Watch what he says here. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Somehow, some way, I can't describe, nor can I explain how this all happens, but when we go into the grave, if you will, one day, as the believer, the body is in the grave, the soul is with the Lord, and the spirit goes back to him who gave it. The fact is, is that when he returns at the rapture, the catching away of the believer, that those that are in the grave will come out. There'll be a resurrection of those that were in the grave. Even as Christ resurrected with a new body, so will they, and their soul will meet that new body, and they'll have a new body forever. And we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them. So it's like, we're going to be on their heels. I'm going to grab hold and hold on for dear life, and boom, I'm gone too, just like you will be. Now, you won't have to grab hold of a heel, so don't worry about that, but He'll call us up and out. That's the rapture of the church. That's part of the second coming of Christ. It is the first stage of the second coming. Boy, that, that truth revolutionizes the mind of the believer. It changes our whole outlook if we are careful to, to note it. Now, I understand that in this particular passage, he talks about the fact that so, so, so he shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He comes back in a cloud. When Jesus returns at the rapture, he'll come only to the clouds, if you will, but not all the way to the earth. Well, he'll bring us to him. But then, following the seven-year tribulation period, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19... We see this detailed, this completion of the return of Christ. He returns partway to take up the saints. He comes back seven years later, all the way to the earth to establish his visible, literal kingdom on earth. And he returns in a cloud as he went. Notice what it says here in Revelation 19, 11, It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and righteousness he doth judge and make war. He goes ultimately to say that he that he hath his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's talking about the return of Christ. And by the way, when he does return, uh, he's going to set things straight. He's going to make it right. And that deals with the second portion, the second stage. So we have the rapture. Over here on this side of the tribulation and seven years on this side of the tribulation now, we have the rapture, the the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally going to make his way all the way to the earth. That is the second coming of Christ. It comes in two stages. And as you read through the scriptures, it can get confusing because when he talks about Christ returning, he, he sometimes... There are times in certain scriptures, if you don't rightly divide, you mix the two up. And that's why some people get when the church will be raptured out wrong. Some say, well, the church won't be raptured until the end of the tribulation. Some say the middle of the tribulation. Some say the beginning of the tribulation, before the tribulation kicks off. May I say, biblically and scripturally, the church has begun back here with Jesus Christ. And it has traveled 2,000 years already. 
And before that tribulation period kicks off, we'll be raptured out. Before it kicks off, we'll be raptured out. And it will continue without us. And then we will return with him. According to chapter 19 of Revelation. Now this truth of the return of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, although he left the disciples. Although he removed himself from earth and went back to heaven. The thought of him returning. The thought of him coming back. Motivated and moved the early church. It ought to motivate and move us. I want to share four things that the, the return of Christ did. The response of these early disciples, how it affected their lives, how it affected their ministries. The fact that Jesus Christ was going to return, how did that affect them? How did they respond? I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and reveal that and show that to you here and see if we can't glean from them and also recognize and realize if that's exactly what God intended it to do for them, it ought to be doing the same thing for us. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership and your love. Speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, today. Lord, if there be any that are without you, the Lord Jesus Christ, may they, Father, recognize their need of Christ in their life and be saved today. They need Jesus. Without Christ, bear their sin alone. And there's not one of us that can bear our sin without spending an eternity separated from you. So, Lord, may they recognize their need to to reach out to you and beg your mercy, forgiveness, and give their sin to you so that you can wash it away. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and the hope that we have in his return. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this reality of the return of Christ moved the early church. The thought that he could return at any moment, at any time, They'd been given marching orders. They'd been told to go out. They'd been given the the final instructions. And he said, you go. And you know what? You keep going till I come again for you. But I'm coming back. So don't let up and don't forget I'll be here again soon. Well, by the way, someone says, well, it's been 2,000 years and he still hasn't showed up. You know that a day with the Lord, a thousand years is a day with the Lord. To the Lord, this hasn't been long at all. For us, it seems like a long time. But may I say that the Lord could return this very moment? That he literally could return to the the, the clouds above and call his church out? Setting up and preparing for that seven-year tribulation period? Listen, I don't want to go through that time, and I know you don't either. There's nothing good written about it. There's nothing positive about it at all in that regard, in the sense at least how we'll respond. You better settle your salvation now so that you can get in on the first trip. So what did it do for this early church? I'll tell you what the return of Christ did for them. The idea, the knowledge, the recognition of the return did. First of all, it persuaded them to worship. I mean, to tell you, I mean, they, they, they were convinced we got to worship the Lord. We need to get busy and, and lifting up and exalting Christ. And I mean, they were to worship. They, they, listen, persuaded to worship, yes, but to worship by fruitfully communing. I mean, not just getting with God, but fruitfully getting with God. Something positive coming forth and out of it. I want you to look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I want you to see how, how this... Fruitful communion affected the life of Peter and John. See, how many times do you talk to someone and you say, yeah, I read my Bible, I pray. What'd you get out of it? I don't get nothing. That's not very fruitful. 
God never intended that it not be fruitful. I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't know about you, but urgency has a tendency to, to change our attitude. I mean, I wonder today if you knew that you only had one more day to live, I wonder how earnestly you would seek his face. I wonder if you'd pray a little more than you are today. I wonder if I would. I, I, listen, I have the answer for you, for me at least. I can't answer for you. I'd be praying a lot more than I prayed today if I knew for sure tomorrow I'd be going to heaven. Do you recognize the fact, do you realize how Jesus Christ said, listen, I'm coming back for you. And he said, so listen, you got opportunity to worship with me. And you say, man, if you're returning and when I stand before you, I'm going to give an account for what I've done in this life. I'm going to make sure I'm close to you. I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I want to know you in a very personal way. You'd have a sense of urgency and you'd want your time with God to be well spent and fruitful. And boy, the early church, they were persuaded to worship because of the return of Christ, but they were persuaded to worship in fruitful communion. Acts 4.13 is evidence of this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they knew that they weren't trained like some of the religious elite were trained. They had traveled with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years, maybe three and a half at most. We know that that's better training than all the schools of the world, but they didn't know that. And they said, now, when we saw the boldness of Peter and John, it affected their outlook. It affected their attitude. It affected their ministries. And they said, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge. What did they take knowledge of? Boy, they sure had a good sales pitch. Boy, somebody really motivated them. Somebody fired them up at some kind of conference. No, they said that they had been with Jesus. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You want to talk about some fruitful communion? When the world can look at your life and your attitude and your outlook and say, man, they've been with Jesus. That's the kind of relationship that we need with Christ as a result of the return. They said, man, Christ is coming back any moment. Get close to him. Draw nigh to him. And it affected their outlook and it affected their lives. A very fruitful communion. But they also worshiped by fellowshipping corporately. They got together as a group. They, they spent time together in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, early on. The Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Boy, the need to remain steadfast and unmovable amidst that perverse and sin-sick world in which they lived. They knew they needed the fellowship of one, and an, uh, one another. That they couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't stand strong enough. They needed the instruction and they needed the inspiration that fellow believers could bring them. They said, we've got to get together. He's coming back. Let's not, let's not lose sight of his return. Make sure we don't forget. And as a result of that, we want to commune with him very fruitfully. And we want to corporately fellowship together. We want to grow in Christ and we want to learn all we can. We want to be ready when he comes back. <clears throat> Jesus had said, will he find faith when he comes? Well, you know what? The only way you'll find faith is if we keep communing together. We keep fellowshipping corporately. So it persuaded them to worship. That return did that. See, the next time you think about, I don't think I need church. You need to remember he could be back today. He could come today. And how would you feel knowing that you neglected him and his church? The very thing he died for. 
You need to remember that he's coming back. And when it seems like he's so far away and so distant that you can't hardly think about him because you're just caught up in this world, you need to slow down a minute. You need to take a deep breath. You need to count to 10 or whatever it takes and remember that Christ is coming again. It persuaded them to worship and it prompted them to, to witness. It prompted them to witness. And I mean, it prompted them to witness in the fullness of power. They wanted the power that only the Holy Spirit could bring them. They recognized the fact that they could not witness to a world that was lost. They could not reach the, the sin sick without a supernaturally, supernatural power and presence. And we read already in Acts 1.8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus said, I've given you a job to do. I've told you, this is your assignment. This is your mission to reach the world with the gospel. And I'm going to give you the very power source you need. And that's the Holy Spirit. And I want you to get the job done. And every time the church started slowing down, every time they started thinking about just kicking back and relaxing, every time they thought, I'll just take a little extended vacation, they looked back and saw Jesus ascending up and said, wait a second, he's coming back again. We got to get to the work prompted them to witness because they knew that they wouldn't have unlimited time we must work the works of him while it is day Jesus said for the night cometh when no man can work and one day Jesus will return and it'll all be done we got to finish the job he left us to do so they witnessed in the fullness of power had the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. They spent time getting to know him and having a relationship with the Lord the God of creation so that the presence of the Spirit of God would be evident that when they went and spoke, it wouldn't be just empty words, be power-filled words. Not only that, to witness in the fullness of power, but we saw that they, it prompted them to witness in the face of persecution. Do you realize that these early Christians knew what persecution was? We're not talking about a door slammed in the face. We're not talking about somebody that said, no, thank you. The Bible tells us early on in the book of Acts, turn to chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, that these believers, man, they experienced tremendous persecution, so much so that they were run out of their own homes, had to leave their own city. They're being tracked down and hunted like ravenous dogs. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death, talking and referring to the death of Stephen, who was the martyr there in chapter 7. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now listen, this persecution wasn't just simply that there was a negative social media campaign. We're not talking about they just started calling us names. That's not what's going on here. Hey, somebody calling me names ain't going to cause me to leave my home. Going to cause me to leave my city, cause me to leave my, my job or my livelihood or the legacy that my parents left me. No, I'm not leaving town for that. No, there was serious persecution. There was threat of bodily harm. There was threat of being cast into prison and even dying. And as a result, they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, <clears throat> except the apostles. Those apostles remained back in Jerusalem. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering into every house and hauling men and women committed them to prison. 
Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, I don't know about you, but I might be tempted if I knew that preaching the word of God could cause me, my wife, or my children to be separated from me, that I could be cast into prison, that they or myself could ultimately die for the cause of Christ. I may be very tempted to say, you know what, I think I'll just keep And I might be able to justify it and find some scripture that says that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. And I'm required to to provide for my family, so I've got to shut my mouth because if I die for my faith, my family will suffer. But obviously, that wasn't what God intended, though. Obviously, our faith trumps even our own immediate family. Because our faith for God, he's the only reason we got the job we have and the only reason we have the health we have. He's the only reason we have the wife and the children we have. Without him, we've got nothing anyway. And these these early Christians thought about this persecution and they were scared out of their minds, I'm sure. And yet they looked back at Jesus as exiting this world and his promise to return. And they said, man, as much as I want to keep quiet, as much as I don't want to put my family and myself in jeopardy, Jesus could come back today, and I don't want to let him down. He died for me on the cross. He rose again for my sin. He paid my penalty, and I'm going to heaven because of him. I've got to work. I've got to work. I've got to get the job done that he sent me to do because of the return of Christ. It's funny how it works. Do you know why you have tests in school? Because you'd never study if you didn't. You know why they tell you you got to do a report and give you a, 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 a date to finish the report? Because if they didn't give you a date, when they were coming back, you wouldn't do it. The point being is, is that you get quizzes in class so that when you do your reading, you actually read it and try to understand it. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going away. But listen, don't think I'm going to forget about you because I'm coming back and I could be back at any moment. Don't lose sight of my return. Do not forget I'm coming again. Why? Because we know when he comes back, the final exam will be given. That exam will be given in our life. We don't want to let him down. He didn't let us down. We don't want to let him down. It prompted them to witness. It it persuaded them to worship, but it also provoked them to work. Now, I don't know I used the word work already, but what I'm talking about is, is that it caused them to make disciples. Not just witness in the world that they live, but literally to expand the, the, the ministry, to work the work of God. They work to reproduce. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. It's one thing to lead someone to Christ. It's another thing to disciple them and help them get grounded firmly. And the early church recognized the need to lay a good groundwork. To make disciples, to ordain preachers, to plant churches, and put pastors in those places. They understood that. That was part of the job. If we're going to reach the world with the gospel, it won't just simply be by saving a bunch of people. We've got to ground them. They themselves have to then be able to go out and do likewise. That's the real work of the ministry. See, the real work of the ministry is not simply just winning a soul. 
It's reproducing yourself in someone. That's the work of the ministry. The early church was moved to do the work of God, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they realized that Christ is coming again. And that everything that he's given them, everything that he's provided them with, every tool and every ability and every asset that was given to them, they were responsible for. They were simpler stewards of. And we've got to make the best use of what God's given us. Because he's coming back and he's, that great exam's going to take place. We want to be ready when he comes. Oh, it's not on our calendar here, but it's on his and he doesn't want us to know when it is. Someone says, well, why wouldn't he tell us so we could be ready? Because it may or may not be in your lifetime. And if you knew it wasn't in your lifetime, you may get lazy. And he wants you to always wonder. You say, he's keeping us guessing? You can say that if you like. But he's really trying to keep you motivated and fired up for the things that are most important. Because let me tell you this. Go ahead and, and give your life to the things of this world. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing more valuable than a soul. And there's nothing more important than us reaching the world with the gospel. And there's nothing more important than investing in eternity. Because this world, the Bible says, this life is simply but a vapor that appeareth for a little time then vanisheth away. Spend your life this vapor. Accumulating all the wealth you can, all the notoriety you can all the homes and cars and all the the blessings that you call blessings. Get them all, accrue them and gather them and and build them to the highest heights. But I'm going to tell you something, it's still a vapor. And then you'll end up in eternity neglecting God a lifetime and looking forward for what you have in store and you have nothing you've sent ahead. God's saying, listen, I don't want you to get to eternity without anything. I'm going to try to keep you moving. I'm coming back, so don't for anything, for nothing, In this world, do you take your eyes off of the heavens? You keep them pointed on the sky. You keep your attitude. He could come back at any moment, and you live that way. And the early church did. The early church did. So we saw three things that it did. It persuaded them to worship. It prompted them to witness. It provoked them to work. And finally, it pushed them to win. I'm not talking about winning souls now. I'm talking about winning the battle. I know we live in a culture and a society that is anti-competition. Everybody gets trophies. Everybody wins. It's funny how it doesn't work in corporate America, but that's what we're teaching our children. It's funny how we're training our children something opposite than what the real world is. And then we wonder why they need medication when they get old enough. We wonder why they're killing themselves left and right because they can't handle disappointment. They've never learned to deal with losing we got to learn that life is life and you can't help it. Told the singles this morning, listen, I don't care. Everybody in the room's had somebody call them stupid or an idiot or dumb. Everybody in the room has, I told them. Get over it. Don't allow what people say affect you like that. Don't be the victim. Be the victor. Man, look at yourself and see yourself the way God sees you, not the way other people. I don't care if it was a parent or not. Don't let other people dictate who you are. You let God tell you who you are. I know not everybody, everybody, I know everybody in here loves me. I know everybody in here, nobody would ever say a negative thing about me. 
I feel good every night when I go to bed. I know everybody loves me. But if for some reason somebody didn't, I know how God feels about me. I know how he thinks. I know what he says I'm all about, who I am, how valuable I am to him. I may not always do the right things, but I know how valuable I am to him. It pushed them to win. While writing the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul exhorted the believers to run the race. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. You have a course to run, is what he's saying. And you need to finish that course. You need to run with patience and you need to continue the journey. You cannot give up. You can't quit. Why? Because he's coming back. How sad would it be to live 30 years or 40 years or 50 years serving Jesus Christ and then one day turning your back on God and then the next day he returns. Boy, the believer had their eyes fixed on heaven and he said, when you start thinking about quitting, when you feel like giving up, you just remember, I'm coming back. I won't leave you comfortless either. I'll give you the spirit, but when I do return, I'm taking you back with me. And so it caused them to stand faithfully. And it caused them to finish strong. Well, the Apostle Paul and others finished strong. How will you finish the race? I'm going to tell you, you will not finish strong unless you keep your eyes on the sky. The moment you forget that he's coming back is the moment you forget he's real. If you don't believe he's real in your life, You have no reason to put up with any of this stuff. Take your ease. Find comfort. Take all of your efforts and all of your energy and all of your assets and do whatever you can to make yourself feel good because this is the best it's going to get. But boy, when we recognize that he died for us and paid the price for our sin... And as believers, we remember that he's coming back. We can't help but say, you know what? This isn't all about me. Before he left, he gave us some marching orders. Before he left, he said, the Holy Spirit's coming. And when he does, you reach the world. And when, when he, he finally went back, he said, I'm coming back in like manner. I'll be back for you. Jesus is coming back. And when you think about quitting, you think about his return. You just ask yourself, how do I, what state do I want to be in when he comes back? If he's real to you at all today, then you know you're going to face him. Give an account for what you've done with the things he's given you to steward in this life. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I want to hear him say, well done. Amen. After church, where she'd been taught about the second coming, a little girl was squeezing her mother. Mommy, 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 do you believe Jesus will come back, she said. Her mother looked at her in the eye and said, yes, of course. Today? In a few minutes? Yes, dear. Mommy, would you comb my hair? Did you get it? 
Because the little girl just believed what she was told. I mean, could he come back today? Could he come back in a few minutes? Yes, dear, he could. Can you comb my hair, please? I wonder, have you combed your hair ready for the return of Christ if he comes? What does that return do for you? How does it affect your life? Boy, the early church, it persuaded them to worship God. It prompted them to witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It provoked them to work and to build and to ultimately reach the world with the gospel. It pushed them to win. I want to be victorious. See, the Bible says we're already on the winning side. It tells us that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We just need to act like it, live like it. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. He's coming back. He's coming back. Maybe you're lost without Christ. You don't even know what it means to be saved today. I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ hung on an old rugged cross. He literally allowed himself to be placed there. He, he, no one put him on that cross. He volunteered. He took his place on that cross. And he did it for you because he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to spend one moment paying for your sin in a place called hell. He literally wants you to dwell with him forever in heaven. He wants you to walk with him while you're on earth. Because he will come in and dwell in you. And he will live in you. And he will work in your life and help you in this life too. He says, but you've got to trust me and you have to receive me. But as many as believed in him, that them gave you power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wants you to live forever with him. And therefore, 2,000 years ago, he paid the ultimate sacrifice by literally God becoming man in flesh, living a sinless, perfect life and dying, paying for the penalty of sin. Your sin. If you'll call on him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He'll save you from the consequences of sin And he'll give to you eternal life. But you have to trust him, receive him, accept him. Not depending on how good you can be, but acknowledging that he alone is good enough. Only he can save me. Only Jesus can forgive me. There's nothing I could ever do to earn God's favor. The only thing I can do is trust Jesus Christ. Will you trust him today? Will you believe on him? Will you allow him to come into your life and be your savior? If you haven't done that, you need to. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's nothing like the Christian life. Amen. It's the greatest life. It has its ups and downs, but it is the greatest life. Because the very creator that created us will live inside you and empower you and enable you to have victory over all things in your life if you'll yield to him and submit to him. He is worthy. Won't you call on him today? Trust him and receive him. Father, we come.